Good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. This is part two of a series we've called Outside the Lines. If you missed week one, there's a website. You can go to slash talks. Uh, that message is up there as well as the rest of the series in case you have to be traveling. But the idea behind the message uh, or the series has simply been this, uh, that Jesus, when we look at the lifestyle of, of kind of what he did and the stories that were captured for us and collected for us and what we know as the New Testament, uh, really reflect a person who operated outside the lines. Uh, we mean uh, that society has a way of kind of describing in like either specific terms or just like we're not going to you know talk about them, but we all know that they exist. Uh, lines between us and them. Here's how you should live. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should operate if you're going to be the new queen. Here's the way that you're operating if you're going to be the new this. Here's who you should uh, be relationally uh, connected to. Here's who you should not be relationally connected to. Very us versus them sort of categories. And when you look at the, the person of Jesus, he very much kind of dis- had like complete disregard for those categories. Um, he lived and loved outside the lines of all of those different things and kind of inspires us hopefully to kind of do that exact same thing because we're encouraged in our current lifestyle and everything to kind of operate with an us versus them mentality, whether it's nationalism or denominationalism or spiritual, you know, which, which uh, spiritual setting you're a part of or mini group or whatever. Um, it happens all over the place. And one of the things that Jesus was like famous for, one of the things that shows up as kind of a slogan against Jesus was constantly that he ate and drank with sinners. It shows up over and over again from some Pharisees who are like, yeah, I mean, he's great. Like he's got a big crowd. He's done the whole healing thing. He sounds really smart, but he eats and drinks with sinners, right? And we would never go to those kinds of parties. Uh, and then we kind of read last week how we were like, yeah, but you just wouldn't be invited to those kinds of parties. That's the problem sometimes with it. Uh, and then the other thing about it is that Jesus not only arrived at those parties and spent time with those types of people, he like initiated and started he, those parties. He was, he was the guy who was like, hey, Matthew, you should follow me. Hey, we should do a dinner. Hey, we should do it at your house. He's like the ultimate college student, by the way. Hey, we should do dinner. You should buy. That's what should, we should like make this happen. I'm gonna invite myself over. Hey, what's in the fridge? That's basically what happens with Jesus and he does this with people who he's not supposed to do it with. And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't like live in those categorical like, uh, dimensions that you guys think of. I, I live and operate outside the lines. And so, and that's been sort of an inspiration, uh, hopefully for us. It's been a lens that, that which we started this church seven years ago. We thought, you know what, what if we did church for people who don't typically like church? That's not who you're supposed to do church for, by the way. I don't know if you know this, but when you are coming up with a marketing strategy for whatever widget you're gonna sell, you should market that widget towards people who are like inclined to buy your widgets. Uh, we did the opposite. We said, what about people who are like not interested in church? Uh, let's go for them, which doesn't make any sense from a marketing standpoint. But when we look at the lifestyle of Jesus, it just feels like the track record at which we're supposed to follow in and do this. Jesus had a, a crazy ability to look at the, the, the circle that churches and uh, the church as a whole, or just religious people in general, tend to draw about who's in and who's out, like who's in the circle, who's in God's good graces, and who's in God's favor, and who's outside of God's good favor, and like scribble away those lines and draw an ever bigger circle, or just continue to continue to scribble up the lines and be like, you know what, it's, it's all over the place. In fact, this was a great tweet that uh, a friend of mine named Dave McGill, he actually was uh, interviewing here a few years ago uh, when we had that car accident. He was in the back driver's or passenger side seat of it, and, and uh, he tweeted this this week, and I, I don't know if he's following with the series or what, but it was like so in line with it. I thought it was fantastic. The older I get, the more convinced I am that when the church draws lines to mark who's in and who's out, that Jesus is on both sides of the line healing us from all the bruises we leave and all of the bruises that we receive. 
all of the bruises that we leave out of our ignorance, when we, we don't recognize the damage that's caused, when we draw lines in the sand of who's in and who's out and who's us and who's them and, and all of those things. And Jesus is on both sides of those lines healing it uh, in that way. So I, I thought it was appropriate for that and the, the point of the series. So today, I want to start and go into what we're going to talk about by um, examining uh, this idea uh, that was presented to me by a, a guy named Dan Allender. He wrote a, either an article or a book. I can't remember. It's the quote sits on a post-it note in my office, and it has to do with parenting, and I can't remember if I pulled it out because I wanted to preach on parenting or if it was just good for Brent to remember when it comes to parenting his kids. But he basically said this. There are two questions that every kid intuitively asks their parents. They may not ever verbalize these, but they are living with these questions, and you need to know what they are. Number one is... Do my parents love me? Uh, that is a critical question that every kid uh, at some point maybe asks you, like actually says, hey, dad, before you, hold up just a second, before you spank me, do you love me? Do you, before you ground me, before you take my phone away, before all of these things happen, do you love me? Uh, so that one kind of gets verbalized a lot. Uh, and then the second question is, will my parents let me have whatever I want? And the summary from Allender, who writes this thing, says, the good parenting and well, uh, well-parented kids know that the answer to the first question is always a yes, and the answer to the second question is always a no. I love you. Yes, I do love you. Because I love you, I love you too much to allow you to do all of the things that you feel like you want to do. Like, I am responsible to put up healthy boundaries in your life. So when it comes to my kids... Um, I have a daughter who's five. She's a twin, but she, uh, she's been playing this game with me. How do, do you love me comes in the form of not just words. Like, I try and tell her I love her as often as I can, but it's also in the attention that I give her. She loves to play this game right now um, where um, it's not really a fun game, but it's a game where she hides things behind her back, and then dad guess which hand it's in. Dad, I, I built something I want to show you, so that requires time away, and then I'm like, okay, well, I, I want to do this. And then when I get up there, she'll, she'll, I got something behind my back. Is it my right hand or my left hand? I'll say, right hand, right? And she pulls it out and it's empty. And I'm like, oh, okay, left hand. And, like, and I lose like every time for like five or six times in a row. I'm like, oh, I don't know, flip a coin, the odds, some point I'm gonna get it right. I didn't realize what was going on until she started playing with my wife who was sitting across from me and I could see behind her back as she switches the item from hand to hand after I tell her which my answer is, right? So then it's all, you're always gonna lose. And I realize, um, okay, so she's a cheater. So she gets that from mom. Um, and... Uh, so then, you know, but it wasn't a matter of, um, I, I realized in that moment, like, getting it right, getting it wrong, she laughs, she, she giggles, we're having a connection point, and uh, my attention that I give towards her in that moment is answering that question, do you love me, will you play this game with me, right, and your kids do this, and, and, and it's the same thing as your kids get older, and you have to go to, uh, you get to go to semi-competitive soccer matches out in the rain and the cold and, the, and whatever, and you, you think, this is worse than back and forth. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that it is. Um, uh, and, and they, they want to watch you. And as soon as they score the goal, they look over to make sure you're watching. They're doing that sort of thing, right? Do you love me? Do you love me? Are you willing to come and invest in this and see me and do all this? So listen, your entire life yeah, as a parent for 18 years or 20 years or 30, however long they live with you, 30 years, whatever, um, you are constantly answering the question, do you love me? Though you may not ever say those words out loud. And then the second thing is this, will you let me get away with or whatever I want, and they start testing these boundaries at a very early age, right? And the answer to that question, well, parenting kids, no, is always no. I don't get to do whatever I want because my parents love me too much to allow me to do that. Um, and, and so that's a question of boundaries, and we just finished off, it's so funny because we just finished off a series on kind of boundaries in a way just two series ago called Guardrails, um, and, I, and the whole point of Guardrails was, you know, 
set up these standards that are going to be some boundaries in your life that you don't cross over. And then I do, and somebody goes, and then you do a series two series later outside the lines, and I'm supposed to live outside the lines. So I'm supposed to be in guardrails, but outside the lines, there's like not very much to work with right there, Brent. There's not a lot of real estate. What do I got? Like six inches to work with. Um, so anyways, I, I figured I would uh, define that a little bit more in terms of boundaries by looking at a story that we're going to look at today that comes from the book of um, John. It, it's basically uh, one of Jesus' disciples. He had he had 12 disciples, but like three were super famous, right? Peter, James, and John were like his top three. Um, and John uh, decided at some point, probably in very old age, decided to write an, his personal account of the person and the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written, most likely, um, some of probably for like 20, 30 years. So there's a good chance he knew all three of those. So a question becomes, why do you think we need another version? And part of it for him was... Um, like Matthew was one of the disciples, um, but had like a, didn't, wasn't privy to all of the things that I was a part of. Luke wasn't even one of his disciples. He just heard about it through some other things. Mark probably got his information from Peter. Uh, but um, I have a unique perspective, and there are more unique stories about who Jesus was in the book of John than any of the other three gospels. All the other three gospels are typically known as the synoptic gospels, meaning when you read them, the timeline, the stories, everything's pretty similar. There's minor discrepancies. But when you come to the book of John, it's kind of like it's its own thing. And so this is one of the stories that comes from this, a unique perspective on something that took place uh, uniquely in John's take or version of the Jesus story. So John chapter four, early on, it's a story about uh, a Samaritan woman. Uh, It's probably one that you're familiar with or have heard of the woman at the well. But um, the story, the setting is simply this, that Jesus and his disciples are down south in Judea. They want to go up north to Galilee. Um, and it says in verse 4 of this that they had to go through Samaria to get there. Now, we're not sure why they had to go through Samaria because that's, not, that's a more of an indirect route. It's kind of like going from uh, uh, to Seattle via Portland. You're like, I mean, there's better ways to get there. You know that, right? Um, but they, this, it sets the tone for this entire story. They have to go east into Samaria, uh, which is an area that they, uh, of a people group where there is, there's some animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, okay? They are, um, remember in the, in the story of the Good Samaritan, like they try and pick the person, whoever's telling the story tries to pick the person uh, that is least likely to help out somebody who's been wounded, especially a Jewish person who's been wounded, and they pick a Samaritan. So the, the relationships between these two people groups is not great. There's racism going on between these because uh, they kind of treated the Samaritans like half-breeds. They intermarried with outsider nations when they weren't supposed to, and that was like a long history, and that was a long time ago, but, you know, we want to hold it against you, and so therefore, you because of your status, you cannot worship in the places that we worship, and you're kind of hijacking our religious systems, and so there's a lot of stuff going on. So he goes through this, da- this dangerous part of town, if you will, uh, through Samaria on his way to Galilee. Um, in verse 7, we're going to pick up the story. The entire chapter, if you text the word notes into 97,000 on the bottom of the note sheet, then you'll see that. I put the whole story there so you can read along there if you want. Um, uh, I, I'm only going to pick a few verses because there's a few things I want to focus on, and, and, but the whole story is available there. So, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, uh, the context, there's so much going on underneath this story we're going to dive into that really makes this idea of boundaries and 
uh, will you let me get away with whatever I want in a huge detail? So a couple of things you need to know. A well was typically at the center of the city uh, or the village or whatever it was. It was the spot everybody would go to, um, especially at, at unique times of the day, usually early on in the morning before it got too hot and late at night uh, because water was not something that was pumped to your house. So you had to go kind of grab it and bring your bucket do the well thing and go back. And so it would be a common ground to be able to mix and mingle. Um, it would be a, a chance to go to, well, you know, like you and I, we go to Costco on Fridays. It feels like everybody in the Tri-Cities goes to Costco on Fridays. You got the day off and, and the parking lot's crazy full or Saturdays and whatever. And you kind of, you see people there and it's like a social event as much as it is, I need 60 pounds of dog food. So that's, that's what happens uh, when we're going there. So um, that's what the well is. And it says specifically that she was that Jesus arrived in the in the heat of the day or in the middle of the day, an unlikely time for somebody to be going to a well. So the fact that she's there either means that you know something came up and we need more water out of, out of nowhere, or this has been a kind of a strategic. I'm going to go to Costco when nobody else is there. I'm going to go at Tuesday at you know 11 a.m. because I don't want to run into people that I know. Right? That can that can definitely be the case. That's probably what's taking place here. All right. So Jesus looks at her and says, uh, will you give me a drink? She responds to him like with an inquisitive eye, looking at him going, listen, I know you're Jewish. You know that I'm, Samari- uh, I'm a Samaritan. You know that you're in Samaria. You know that you're a man and I'm a woman. I, I, it's pretty clear that you're a rabbi and I'm just a nobody. Like, why are you even talking to me? And this is like, this is the context of what's going on here. You're asking me for a favor, but the fact that you're even talking to me is kind of a big deal. Why, why is this taking place? And she begins to question about, you know, did you show up at a well without some sort of a bucket? Like, what, what, what were you expecting to get here? Did you think there was a fountain? Like, I don't, I don't understand what, what, what the process is with this. Um, she says, she begins to talk about this well specifically, and then she offers him a glass of water, and he, he drinks it. Um, and then he begins to make these, this comment on living water. He's like, thank you, I'm, I'm so thirsty. Um, by the way, I can offer you not a glass of water, but I could offer you uh, living water so that you'll never thirst again. And verse 15 says this, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water, which can be taken a couple of ways. One can be taken in the way that she's genuinely interested, like, okay, if you can save me a return trip, like this would be amazing. I tend to read things into what makes the most sense for this character in this story. Like, uh, it doesn't make sense for me to all of a sudden her be like, oh, I'm so intrigued. What makes sense for her is to respond in a cynical manner because that's kind of what I would do in this way. And listen, you have asked somebody to go on about something even when you're genuinely not interested in them going on with, with talking about something, haven't you? In fact, my guess would be five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, in the lobby, you had conversations with somebody where you're not genuinely interested, but you have to act interested because you're in church and you haven't seen these people in a week. Oh, so tell me more about your camping trip. I'm so intrigued, right? I'm not. I'm looking at the clock going, can the countdown video come happen soon enough, right? I think that's what's taking place in this passage. Oh, this is why she prefaces it with, oh, sir, Um. You're so much smarter than me. Ooh, living water that replenishes itself? Tell me more about this 
everlasting water. And I imagine that as she's, she's like, I can't leave. Like I came here to fill this bucket up. It's gonna take me five or 10 minutes to do this. As badly as I want to leave, I have to stay to finish the job that I came to do. This freaking weirdo's talking to me and I have to act interested or, or I'm just playing the social, like this is proper socially for me to say, oh, please tell me more as I can fill my bucket as quickly as possible so that I can be like, I'm so sorry. I have to go. I have kids at home, right? I, I want to get out of here, but I can't leave quite yet. I think that that's what's going on with this. Sir, you know, tell me more about all of this. Verse 16, he told her, oh, why don't you go call your husband and come back, and then I'll tell you about it. And verse 17 jumps right into, I have no husband. Um, but I imagine in the reality, because I really think that this story took place, and I'll explain why I think this was a true, like, legit took place, not a parable. I think that if this story really took place, then probably what happened between verse 16 and verse 17 is what we like to call a long, awkward pause, where Jesus says, why don't you go get your husband? Let's talk about this thing. And then she has to say, I don't have a husband. I have a funny feeling that you already knew that, though, and that you're, like, poking at me with something. Like, you, you know and you're about to turn the conversation towards some sort of shaming me, maybe the fact that I'm here in the middle of the day and I don't want to talk to a bunch of people or run into people I know, or like, I don't think this is news to you, but I don't have a husband. I don't know how you know. I don't know who told you. I don't know if there's like hidden cameras around here. Like, am I being X right now? What's going on with, with this? Did somebody tell, did Julie tell you? Did Have you been talking to, you know, whatever? And I, I, I think that that's kind of what's happening in this moment. I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Dun, 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 right? This is, a, uh, this is like the days of our lives <laughs> version of, of Jesus's ministry. Uh, as sands go through the time, you know, whatever that thing is. Anyways, um, this is, this is uh, down and dirty. Now, there are, there, are, there are two ways that you can tell if somebody is like um, criticizing you versus critiquing you, right? Criticism is always a lot more painful. It's meant to kind of degrade you. It's a, it's a shaming mechanism. It's a, I'm gonna tear you down because somehow it feels better about myself even if it doesn't mean anything to me. You can do it through words or through tone. And through words, it feels like this is a shaming mechanism. It feels like he's trying to bring up the fact that, oh, I know people like you. Your kind come to the, the well in the middle of the day because you don't want to be seen by a bunch of people because you're on round number six, and it's like more like five and a half because you're not even married at this point, right? Um, and yet, here's what's interesting about this story. Like, how did this story come to be written? How did John know about this? Because once again, previously I mentioned that the disciples had gone into the city with, into Samaria, but Jesus had kind of sent them all away to go get food and then come back. Jesus is by himself with this woman in this moment. So how did this whole story and this conversation come to be? Um, somebody told John about it, which is why he said, I need to write this thing down. This is important. Now, it could have been Jesus. It could have been as soon as the disciples got back, 
Jesus is like, hey, guys, huddle up, huddle up. So I had this great conversation with this woman over here. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. And uh, so I called her out on all of her crap, and I said, it's not five. It's like five and a half. Wah. You know what I mean? Uh, I just don't think that Jesus did that. I think the more likely scenario is, as we'll see later on, she had her life changed and was, was met, and, and therefore, I think in that it and she, I think that she's the one that communicated this, or word got around, and it came. The source material came from her. I don't think Jesus started this. I think she told this story, and when she told this story, she included these nitty gritty details, which would not be great. It's not typically what you want, like led. Even in like modern day society, if you've gone through five divorces, it's not something that's like in your Twitter profile. You know what I mean? You don't like add that. It's just so you know. <laughs> five times it hasn't worked out for me, right? Um, that's reality for some people, but, but that's, you're like, I'm, I'm not proud of five failed marriages in the same way that you wouldn't be proud of five failed businesses or five failed, uh, you know, ventures of some sort of business thing or something. So anyways, but she includes it. Why? Why would you ever include those kind of details? It's almost as if she included because she knew, like, he knew all of this stuff, and that's pretty amazing, but he didn't do it in the tone that I would have expected him to do it. He didn't start using scripture verses about how divorce is terrible and you shouldn't do this and God hates divorce and so therefore, you know, he didn't do this whole love the sinner, hate the sin type thing. He didn't, he didn't use any of that. Like the way that he said it revealed truth about me, that revealed that he kind of knew something. And I don't know how, again, and even in this story, like how did he know? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Did Jesus was like a mind reader? Did he use his like Jesus powers to be like, I see your future and uh, I know it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Here's what I do know. That when he said this to her, it didn't feel like shame or it didn't feel like shaming to her. I don't think it did. Otherwise, why, why would you include this? He directly challenged her departure from God's ideal for sex and marriage he saw beneath her distorted behavior to, to the need and the emptiness that were driving it. And without a shred of, I disapprove of you in his words or his tone, he began to talk about this idea, this metaphor of a living water. Listen, it sounds like you've been like chasing after something. It sounds like you've been like thirsty for something and you've tried to fill it with men and sex and all kinds of stuff. And it just, had, would you say that it hasn't worked for you? Would you say that it's been less than awesome? Would you say that maybe... Um, Maybe that's like, there's been enough experiments now that it's not probably the next one. It's not like you said, I just, I, it was the wrong guy. That's the problem. But the next guy, he's the right one. Well, that's the right one. If only I had that, this one first. And then that fails. You're like, ah, I was convinced. See, I thought that that was the right one. But now I'm just going to keep trying the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. He's basically looking at her and saying, hey, what if I could give you what five failed relationships have failed to deliver for you? It's a living sort of water. It's that need has been met that you've tried so hard to meet in so many different places. What if I had that to offer to you? And when he did it, it's almost as if he earned the right to be heard. There's a, there's a guy who started Young Life a, a few years ago, um, and one of the terms that they use constantly is earn the right to be heard in the life of your kid, right? Uh, we are able to speak truth to people once we've earned the right to be heard. That's the specific quote from him. And which means like, hey, if, it's no use 
offering critique to somebody if you have not earned the right to be heard. And by the way, the, the difference between critique and criticism is critique comes from a path of I love you and I want to speak into your life to make you better. Or it always comes from the motive of restoring and building up. You need critique in your life. I need critique in my life. What we don't need and what we often get way more often or what we feel like we get more often is criticism, which aims to harm and to tear down. It's a shaming mechanism. You tear me down. It makes, me, makes you feel better about yourself. And so, I, don't, I mean, whatever, right? We need critique. We just get confused in our minds because everything begins to feel like criticism. We know we're imperfect. We know we're not great. And very, time, very few times in our life do we trust people enough to be able to offer critique in our life. The blind spots, the, the spots where we, we do need to be told, um, no, I love you too much to allow you to get away with everything that you ever want. It's probably not Fi's husbands for you. It's probably something. And we all try to fill the void with that. Jim Carrey, the actor, uh, had this quote. Uh, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Man, I wish everybody, think, this is a guy who, I mean, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, all, all of these fantastic movies. He's hilarious. He's won awards for everything. He's got probably, he wipes his butt with $100 bills. I almost guarantee it, right? Um, I think everybody should get rich and famous so that they can be in the position and realize not quite what we thought it was. <clears throat> Jesus looks at her, says these words to her, not to shame her, but to ask her the question in an overt way, how's that working out for you? Do you want to talk about it? You thirsty still? You need something to quench that little desire that you've been trying to fix with so many different things. Now, here's the deal. There's a couple of ways you could take this story. I think if you've ever heard this story preached in, in church before, it's about grace and inclusion, and that's all fantastic and, and really good. It's also like, who's the hero in this story? A lot of times we point to Jesus and be like, oh, See, you need to be more like Jesus in the lives of your friends. You need to earn the right to be heard or earn the right to have your critique listened to because you care about them, right? And that's so legit and great. And yeah, your friends, there are some friends who are making life choices um, that uh, you know are, are not great. And, uh, and if you love them enough, you need to speak up, which is totally great. Take that and go from it. For the rest of us, there's another side of the story. There's a narr- another hero in this story. And for me, as I'm, as I'm looking at this week, I'm realizing um, there are imperfections, and every once in a while, uh, I uh, will get critiques, or I'll read scripture, or I'll, I'll, I'll be challenged through prayer, or I'll, I'll realize just my own conscience with God that I'm not matching up to it. So the hero in this story that I, I really want to focus on and think that is worth doing is this, is this woman who stays, who sticks around, who Jesus mentions, um, yeah, you've been married five times and now you're with somebody else and and he's not even, like you haven't even gone through, you're not even gonna waste time with marriage at this point. It's just, you know, hasn't worked out, so it's a broken system, I'm out. And he says, you know in your heart you're living with this guilt um, and, and it's, let me offer you something different. And she stays around. She sticks it out. See, I think I would have left. <laughs> I, think, I think that there are very few people who their critique doesn't sound like criticism. So to 
stay in that moment. And the next phrase, she begins to ask him, okay, let me throw a theological question out at you. She asks about these mountain things like, can we worship? Uh, we're supposed to worship on Mount Sinai, but you won't allow your people, like, right, your category won't let us go there. So we've, we work in, we uh, worship on Mount Gerizim. Um, so which one? She, she, she turns the question one more time into this thing about racism. Like, don't you realize, like, this is all bonkers, and, and I'm not sure uh, how to kind of interpret this. So let me just throw out one more us versus them category. Let me draw the line in the sand, to which Jesus then wipes it away and says something like, you know what? In the future, you're going to worship in spirit and truth, and there's not going to be this mountain. There's not going to be this space stuff. Listen, quit trying to make excuses for it. Yes, we have an institutional problem, Right? Yes, there's institutional racism that we are dealing with, that it is broken, and that in, people in my position often take the form of crit, not crit, critiquing you, but criticizing you as if, as if we're better than you. Someday that's not going to be the case, and we need to kind of be like, okay, that's going to get handled, but in the meantime, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? Jesus loved and lived outside the lines. She stayed long enough to hear about it and to be challenged, and to grow in this way. Then verse 28 says this, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Eats and drinks with sinners. Knows everything about me. Eats and drinks with sinners. Criticized. Operating outside the lines knows everything about me and was willing to tell it to me. Like he shouldn't have, and yet he did, and he did it in such a way, weirdly, I'm okay with it, and I want to be better as a result of it. Could he actually be the Messiah? And then a few verses later, verse 39, and we don't know the time frame between this, but many of the Samaritans from that town, John like summarizes it all, Many of them believed in him because of this woman's testimony, which was, he told me everything I ever did. Typically, we do not like people who tell us what's wrong with us. We're self-aware enough, thank you very much. Why don't you manage your business? We don't know very many verses in the Bible, but we do know the log in the eye and the splinter, and, but we don't know it fully. So we're like, there's a log somewhere. And it's your eye, and you should work on that, right? And so those, that's, our, that's our phrase that we like to do. Because when it, when it means something to us, when we're like, well, yeah, judge not lest you be judged. We know that one too. And so we're like, we love those two verses because we want to just tell people, you don't need to waste your time telling me what's wrong with me. I know enough about what's wrong with me. Uh, and so then we don't have a lot of people or spaces or environments where we welcome critique. And here's the, here's the truth about like, you, if you've been coming to Eastlake for any length of time, right? The constant critique that I get from people who speak into me that I've invited to be like, hey, tell me about this message. Like we meet in between services to make sure it's better for second service than it was for first. Kudos to you. Anyways, um, I'm always like, okay, tell me about this. Uh, what do I need to do? And they say, you apologize too much. You, tr- you let people off the hook. You constantly are like, well, Jesus says this, but you know, whatever you want to do, you know, this is, this is truth, but whatever. You can go either way. And they're like, stop apologizing for it. 
People need to be okay with it. People need to put their big boy pants on, right? And understand, listen, there may be some things that we talk about where you're like, nah, that's like a little guilty. If you only come here, if we only came here, if in every week it was like, let's already affirm what we're already doing. And we've already, you know, we all agree with this, right? And then we all just leave. Like, that's not, that's not what you want. That's not what you really want, I don't think. I read this book called Messy by a guy named uh, uh, A.J. Swoboda. He pastors in Portland. He said, there's this woman who came to my church who like just didn't match the profile for a typical church person, right? She came in, you could tell there was some, some baggage, some issues and some lifestyle decisions. And he began to ask her, he's like, listen, I want you to come here. Like, I'm so glad that you're here. Could you explain to me why you stay? Like when I talk about some of these things and it's so clear that like you have, that, that, uh, that do you feel like I'm speaking at you? I mean, is it? And she's responded with, ah, you know, I love it. I want to be in a place where I don't agree with everything that's always said. I want a place that doesn't just say a stamp of approval on everything that I've done in my life. I don't want to worship a God who agrees all of the same, with all the same things that I already agree, who likes the same people that I do. Because in that sense, if I'm being honest with myself, I've probably created God in my own image. There's a quote a long time ago that God, at the, in the beginning, in the creation story, God created man in his own image. And in response, man's been doing that for God for, since then. We create our God in our own image. Or the quote that was on the screen at the very beginning of this is kind of an opener from Anne Lamott. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. How convenient is that? So, for us, the hero in the story is absolutely Jesus. Should we, should we become more like Jesus? Should we earn the right to be heard? Should we earn the right for our critique to make, to make something, uh, make a difference in the people, especially the, the, the lives of the people that we love? Absolutely. But let us not forget, let us not overlook the fact that she stayed, that she stuck around, that though she started in cynicism, oh yeah, tell me more about this living water. As soon as he said and, sh- and, and brought something to her, a truth about her life, not because he shamed her, but because he pointed out, you've been trying. There's a flaw. There's an imperfection here. She didn't shut down. She didn't say, well, what do you know? She didn't say, I need to leave right now. She stuck around. And later, she would go on to say, let me tell you about a guy who told me everything I ever did. And then include some of the nitty-gritty details in her story just to make it true, just to make it real or stand out. This is significant. This is incredibly significant. And for us, as we recognize the fact that Jesus lives and loves outside the lines, invites us into that, in a sense, he's done that for us too. Must we forget that we are the recipients of grace and called to do this as well? Now, we have an opportunity. May we be the type of people who respond similar in the way that she does and not leave when critiques arise, especially from people that we love, but allow that to be a spot where we recognize we worship a God who speaks to us like nobody else does because he loves us, because he cares about us. He has a critique. There's a critique it matches up with what Scripture says, what we know about Jesus for us. We're not perfect. We're on this trajectory towards being more and more like Christ, being made more and more like his image. And we have a responsibility to do it to the people we love. But 
we also need to choose to stick around. To stick around. When we know that we don't match up. When we know that there's a little bit of imperfection that needs a little bit of work on. Let's pray. Father, hopefully for us that is... uh, something that lines up with us. Hopefully, hopefully we, we recognize um, that your truth and our lifestyle don't always match up. And when it does, um, we are big enough to realize um, that we can either you know, create you in our image or choose to continue to live in that way or take a real honest inventory of where we're at and who we are and what you want us to be. We ask that you would give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard encouraged to act on it in your name. Amen.